Well, amen and amen, and let me just say what a delight it is to be back here at Grace Bible Hutch. Uh, it's been some years, and I uh, just appreciate this church, had some history with it. Of course, love uh, your pastor and his wife in days gone by, Rob and Chris, but uh, I'm sorry, uh, Rick and Chris, that'd be his dad. But uh, so it's just a delight to be with you once again. Uh, our focus, l- let me just say that I, I, I greet you on behalf of Shepherd's Seminary, as, as uh, uh, your Pastor Bart mentioned, uh, I teach at a seminary in Cary, North Carolina. But interestingly enough, uh, it's, I'm going to be able to say in, uh, in just a few weeks that I teach at a seminary in Hutchinson, Kansas, because uh, in, in the sweet providences of God, and we are so honored and delighted by this uh, at the seminary, uh, Grace Bible, your pastor, the leadership here, has, uh, has agreed to partner with us, and there will be a, a cluster site here at the church. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, I won't get into it at all. Suffice it to say that uh, it is uh, in every way a genuine seminary experience right here at this church. And uh, so that's one of the reasons uh, I've come out this week. I'm so thrilled to be part of the Bible conference, but I just want you to well, be aware of that, and, and two items real quickly, and I think I got this right, and Stefan or Brad, uh, Bart, wherever you are, straighten me out if I'm not, but, but uh, we are hosting a, uh, a, a dinner ten, tomorrow night at 5 o'clock for any, and I think this is kind of RSVP and it's pretty well set in place, although we might be able to find a place for you, uh, for, for ministry leaders and pastors and so on in the region, because we want churches in, in, in the nearby region to understand that uh, there is a seminary uh, that meets here in this church. That is, Shepherd's Seminary has a cluster site, meets here, and so on. And as I say, it's, it's full-on, graduate-level uh, program. But on the other hand, we do encourage lay folk, people who are not looking for a degree but would like the learning, to join as audits. And uh, t- uh, Sunday at noon, after the morning service, or as soon as close to noon as the long-winded preacher finally gets done. But no, Sunday at noon, uh, it's kind of an open luncheon for anybody who would be interested in hearing about it just because you think you might be interested in sitting in on the classes. Now, it's, it's, I always tell people it's not Sunday school on Monday night or whatever, and our classes all meet once a week, and so a class involves just meeting once a week in the evening. And, uh, uh, but there are certainly... Uh, the classes could be very, very profitable for those who are just anxious for the learning and not for necessarily the degree. And of course, the cost is much less. All right. So greetings from Shepherd's Seminary. And uh, I've always felt at home here, but now I feel even more at home because we're going to be partnering in that fashion. Well, our focus uh, this, this, uh, uh, in, the, in, in the conference is, uh, look at that. We just worked this out, Dana. Thank you so much. But uh, the, uh, uh, is, is the family life of Christ. And folks, uh, what I'm going to do, and tonight I would just like to really focus on getting very, very serious about who Jesus is, was, is, and uh, specifically focus on the reality and the dynamics and the significance of his very, very real, genuine humanity. And that's where I'm going to take you because let me just say that I've got a bit of an agenda. And uh, I, I think it is so delightful to go through the Gospels 
and to uh, examine, to study those, er those, those incidents, those times where Jesus interacts with his own family, his physical family. And we're going to do some of that in, in the days to come, in the time we have. But folks, my, my agenda, I might say, is, is I think it's so important for us to get ever more delighted by this reality that Jesus lived a real life. In fact, he lived a life which is stunningly more like the life you live than we are prone to understand. Does that make sense to you? Honest to goodness. And what I'm after, and I've used this figure in these sacred precincts before, but uh, what I'm after initially is to whatever degree is important is necessary to get you to rather consciously disabuse your mind and your soul spirit of what I call the Clark Kent approach to Jesus Christ. You know what I mean by that? The fact is there never was a Clark Kent. That was Superman pretending. Does that still work today? We still know Superman for heaven's sakes? I grew up on the comic books. But, but uh, uh, there never, and, 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 and this idea that Jesus was in fact just pretending to be human. He was God dressed up as man. He was perpetuating the illusion that he was genuinely human. Now, when I put it that way, you're offended. Of course, we don't believe that. And, and we find it in every way offensive. But I will argue, and this is why I'm taking you where I am, that it is, and I like to say the besetting carelessness, of an awful lot of Christians, and I mean mature, deliberate, serious, well-taught Christians, to fall into the Clark Kent syndrome. But I don't mean that with regard to our doctrinal affirmations. Any, any doctrinal statement, any statement of faith which has any claim whatever to orthodoxy is going to have a plank on the person of Jesus, and it's going to say explicitly that Jesus was God from eternity, eternity, but at a point in time when he was conceived by the Spirit in the womb of his mother, he took upon himself genuine unfallen humanity, and therefore Jesus became the God-man, fully God, fully man. Now that's orthodoxy. But what I'm saying is I, I think it's, it's sort of the besetting carelessness, and probably not here. This is a stunningly well-taught church for many decades, but let me just suggest that if this, if, this, uh, uh, if, if, if this tendency resides anywhere in your mind or soul spirit, I'd like to address it very, very deliberately. And my point is, I think it is the besetting carelessness of so many Christians to grow careless about the reality of Jesus' genuine humanity and to functionally treat him as if he were Clark Kent dressing, uh, you know, he were Superman dressing up like Clark Kent. Not in terms of our doctrinal statement, but in the terms of the way we read the stories. When we read the narratives of Jesus' life in the Gospels, I think there's a tendency to think, well, of course, he was living that experience out on a plane entirely different from mine because he was God, very God. All right, I'm going to get specific. Uh, I heard a man some years ago, and I've used this illustration and beat up on this poor fellow for a lot of years, but, but uh, uh, he was actually talking about Jesus at the age of 12, that is Jesus' 
when he was 12, and, uh, and, and in Luke chapter 2, and interacting with the, uh, with the doctors of the law and so on. And by the way, just as an aside, I think this man, as he was discussing this, got it wrong in any way because he had Jesus being kind of flip and arrogant and showing everybody up, and I don't think there was ever anything of that spirit in our Lord. But at any rate, he said this, that it would have been hard to argue with Jesus because, after all, he always knew what you were going to say before you said it. Now, just, just ponder that for a minute. I like to say, it seems to me that there are two questions that suggest themselves. One is, and this is entirely theoretical, parallel universe, but the first question is, might he have? Did he have the intrinsic capacity to constantly exercise, if you don't mind, the attribute of omniscience? I think, I think so. Ontologically, he was God, very God. But that's not the relevant question. The relevant question is not, might he have known everything you were going to say? The relevant question is, according to the text, did he know everything you were going to say? Did he live his life that way? And the text could not be more explicit and clear that no. Now, we're going to talk about it. i got a number of notes here. I'm going to walk you through it very, very quickly. And then I want to get a rather practical with it and actually sort of survey the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus as sort of a background for some of the things we're going to talk about uh, in the next couple of days. But just as a thought experiment here going in, uh, is it true that... Uh, all right, I'm, I'm getting myself in trouble here because I'm way down the road. I, got, I better back up a little bit. But, but uh, well, let me do this. Let me take you to the, to the notes that you have in front of you. And, and I... I do this rather deliberately because, honest to goodness, folks, and, and again, I, I, I don't think this is going to be uh, much of an issue with most of you, but almost everywhere I go, if I get to talking about the, the, the life of Jesus and specifically the fact that he lived a real, genuine uh, human life, he took upon himself genuine humanity, it was unfallen, and that's a huge factor. And, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. But the point is that when I, when I talk about that, uh, people react by thinking I'm calling into question the reality of the deity of Jesus. And I'm not. And so I give you on your sheet here some rather careful, not awfully detailed, but some rather deliberately theological uh, 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 treatment of the, reality, the, uh, of the person of Jesus. And, uh, and, and I'm try, I try, there's not a man on earth who is more committed and more delighted in the reality that Jesus was God, very God, that he, he was a, the second person of an eternal uh, triune Godhead who at a point in time, you know, Jesus' humanity is not eternal. Jesus' humanity is temporal. It, it was when he was conceived in the womb of his mother that he took upon himself genuine humanity. And, well... All right, so let me just get to it. And let me just say this, too, that, honest to goodness, I'm, I'm treating this as kind of a, oh, kind of a classroom situation. So if, if, if there's something you'd like, you, you, I'm really confusing, you've got a question and so on, you can grip my attention, uh, I'd be happy to stop, all right, just so you know. It's kind of not, doesn't have to be one way. All right, so you're the first focus. And again, I, I say, concerning the reality and integrity of the humanity of Jesus, pondering the inscrutable and bowing the knee to what is revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the Bible teacher's favorite verse, 
And we always quote the first part, the secret things belong to God. Well, that's a tough question, but you know the secret things belong to God. Ah, but don't forget the last part of that verse. That which stands revealed belongs to us and our children. And so our responsibility is to bow the knee to what the Bible clearly says. And let me say before I get, get to the notes, which are a little dry and toasty, but uh, as opposed to this scintillating stuff I'm talking about now, of course. But, but honest to goodness, I, I'll just say this, and this is so important. There is bottomless, delightful mystery in the person of Jesus. So I'm not suggesting that we can just dissect it and work it out ontologically and understand. Uh, you know, let me say, and, and ponder this as just a thought exercise as we go into this. There are any number of places in biblical thought, in doctrine, uh, as, as you ponder what the Bible has to teach us about God and his interaction with human, humanity and so on, there are any number of places, and this is the way I like to say it, where you have the intimate interplay between the divine and the human. And every time you have that, it produces a mystery. Now, I know that the word mystery is beat up a little bit, uh, but what I mean by that, uh, it, 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 it takes us to a place, to a set of realities, if you don't mind, which transcends our capacity to fully understand it, even to reconcile it. So the fact that Jesus is God, very God, and yet he took upon himself genuine humanity is, is it's mind-boggling. It's, it's, it's more than we can comprehend. As a matter of fact, in that regard, I think, I think it's good in, in even pondering this to take just a moment and, and come to grips with the difficulty of Jesus' claim to be God come in the flesh. That is, he was born and reared, and we'll talk a little bit about that, in the village of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, reared in Nazareth, and then he uh, moved to Capernaum, and for three and a half years he went about doing good, as the Bible says. But again and again, you know, all throughout his ministry, Jesus made two claims concerning himself. Now, uh, uh, and those two claims are, number one, he claimed to be the Messiah, the Christos, the Mashiach, the long-awaited deliverer who was first of all promised in Genesis 3, there in the, in, in the garden after, immediately after Adam and Eve fall. So he claimed to be the Messiah, and then secondly, he claimed to be God come in the flesh. And, and just in terms of coming to grips with the life as he, he lived as it's laid out in the scriptures, it's, it's good for us to ponder how stunningly difficult those claims are. How, and I, I, I like to say that I may be the only, the, the only guy left in the English-speaking world who knows how to use the word incredible, you know, because I use this line all the time, but everything is incredible today. You know, I, that, that was an incredible sermon. And I always think, wouldn't it be better for a sermon to be credible? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Incredible means unworthy of belief. That's what it means, all right? Unbelievable, incredible. It means unworthy of belief. And Jesus claims, and, and I'm not making that up when I say that's what he claimed, because you have four times in the Gospels, I'll go through them real quickly, when this is explicit. The first one is in John chapter 11, no. The first one is in Matthew 16, where Jesus gets his disciples, remember this, this is late in his public ministry, 
and he has, has never spoken about dying to his disciples, and he moves heaven and earth and spends several months and travels several hundred miles in the attempt to get alone with his disciples because he knows how absolutely, oh, it's, how it's going to just stagger them when he makes the, the simple claim that he's going to die. And so he finally takes them not to Caesarea Philippi, but to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and there's a good reason. And by the way, too many by the ways, but one of the points that I want to make before I'm done here this evening is that the, one of the most stunning and delightful elements or features or dynamics of the life Jesus lived as recorded in the Gospels is he was so clever. He was so clever. And clever in the sense of Matthew 10, 16, where he told his own disciples that as they went out in his name, because they represent him, they must be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And the word wise there, quite frankly, is not the standard wisdom word, the skillful living word that we're so used to, so central. It's, it's a different word. It means clever. It means strategizing. It means if you don't mind, uh, 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 well, it has the idea of, uh, well, just that clever, pulling together all the resources you possibly can, laying careful plans and so on, revising those plans as you have to. So Jesus commanded his disciples to be wise as a serpent, clever as a serpent, but, and this is such the beauty of this juxtaposition, this balance, wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. So in all of your clever strategizing and making full proof of whatever resources you have and, and buying up every opportunity and putting your enemy at every disadvantage, all of that's in the word clever, but in that you never violate any principle of morality or ethics, any biblical command, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And Jesus lived that perfectly. But when we fall into the Superman syndrome or the Clark Kent syndrome, and we have this idea that Jesus just trod through life like some sort of a colossus, and every time he walked into the room, everybody became a robot and had to do exactly what his, you know, he wasn't really living a real life. We miss that dynamic of Jesus being so clever, and it's, it's, it's really stunning a number of times. But having said it, to come way back to it, my point is that Jesus demanded that. Okay, here's my point, that Jesus claims, oh, you know what, I was in the middle of a story. I remember you don't. So I'm back to, I'm saying there are four times where, where you have this twofold claim to be Messiah, God coming to flesh. And the first one is when he finally gets his disciples up there to the region of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. And do you recall, this is in Matthew 16, and I like to say Jesus gave his disciples their one question oral exam, comprehensive oral exam for their undergraduate work. And I call it that because he had graduate work for him, but they had to have the undergraduate work. And so he said, remember, whom do you say that I am? And what did Peter, on behalf of the others, I think, say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember, Jesus exalts. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And, and, and he's so, they've got it. Why, why was he so excited? Because he knew how terribly, terribly difficult those claims were. All right, real quickly. I can't stop at each one, but... The second one is John 11, where Jesus uh, goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, and Martha comes out and meets him, and, uh, and, and, and he makes this stunning promise where he says, your brother shall live again. Oh, I know he'll get a, get live at the resurrection, but I want him now. Wait, I am the resurrection of life. Though he's dead, he's going to live. And then he says, and, and 
What's interesting to me about this particular pericope or passage is that it is so absolutely fraught with emotion. Here's Martha. She's upset. She's lost her brother. Jesus didn't come. He tarried for two days. They sent a messenger, and because he loved him so much, remember this, he tarried for two days. And uh, so Martha is, and, and, and when Jesus simply says, I am the resurrection of the life, then he says, Martha, do you believe this? And this is not where she sits and ponders and says, well, now let me think, how would I? No, it just explodes out of her heart. Master, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <clears throat> That's exactly what she says. And then, now this is a bit of a strange one, but I think it reflects what I'm trying to say, and that is this is what Jesus claimed concerning himself. These are the two claims that he makes throughout his ministry. You have it reflected in the question of Caiaphas on that late Thursday, early Friday, when Jesus has been hauled in. He was, he, was, he was arrested down the Valley of Kidron as he emerged from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was hauled up to the high priestly villa there in the walled city of Jerusalem, and they have him on trial, and Caiaphas, frustrated, finally puts Jesus under oath, and he says, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? That's what came, Caiaphas knew, that. and Jesus, of course, says, absolutely I am. He, that's exactly, bingo, you got it right. And, uh, and then the final time, and this is the big one perhaps, is John chapter 20 in verse 30, where in his purpose statement, John the Apostle says, many other miracles did Jesus among his apostles, which are not written in his book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can you finish that verse? It's huge. And that believing you might have life through his name. So what did Jesus demand that you bow the knee to? That he is that long-awaited deliverer, but he is also God, very God, come in human flesh. Now, I go through that whole thing just to make this point, that we, it's very hard for you and me to really appreciate how bottomlessly difficult those claims are, how, how genuinely incredible those claims are. His claim to be Messiah was primarily incredible, hard to believe, because it was so disappointing. We're looking for a warrior. And we get a, 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 you know, a sage. He's not calling upon men to rebel, but to repent, and, and in every way. As a matter of fact, you want the best, I think, gospel index of how disappointing Jesus was as a messianic claimant. Now, I get deeply into this, and I, but, but I'll just say it simply. What is most stunning in that regard is John the Baptist, the one who proclaimed the Messiah, the one who heard the voice and saw the Spirit and so on. But now he languishes in a prison because he's been arrested by Herod Antipas, and he's down there in Macarus, and Jesus doesn't do anything about it, and he sends messengers. He says, okay, are you the one to come or not? That's how desperately, how, how confidently he expected. Uh, and, and, and again, I, I get deeply into that, and Jesus fulfilled every anticipation of the, of, of the Hebrew Scriptures and so on. But so I'm just saying that Jesus' claim to be Messiah was a disappointment. But folks, Jesus' claim to be God come in the flesh was high blasphemy, unless it just happened to be the truth. And it had never been the truth before. And, and, and to, to give some meat to this, I always like to encourage people, imagine that you are living in that day. 
And, and here stands one before you, and maybe, maybe you're a Nazarene. Maybe you grew up with him. Maybe you're about his age, and so you're still a little angry at him about what he did to the curve back there in, 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 in you know, the synagogue school, if you know what I'm saying. But, uh, but my point is that you've known Jesus all of his life. You remember when he was a child. You remember when, I mean, uh, you, you've lived through all the vicissitudes of life with him. He lived for 30 years in that little village of Nazareth. And uh, so at any rate, just very quickly, now he returns to the village, maybe Luke chapter 4, and you're in the synagogue that day, and he claims to be God come in the flesh. I'm telling you, folks, we have gotten way too used to that idea. Kind of rolls off our tongues. Yeah, Jesus was God come in the flesh. But imagine standing there, and, and, and as a Jewish person, and if there's one thing you know for sure as a Jew, you see, all of your history and your people's history, your people have been surrounded by pagans, and they got this pantheon of gods living on a hill outside of town, and they're all nothing more than men blown big, and they just sin big and revenge big and lust big, but they're just men blown big. But if you know one thing for sure, your Yahweh is not, a man. He's not just a, like, like a man blown big. As a matter of fact, all throughout the Old Testament, you remember God's favorite, Yahweh's favorite, yeah, one of the favorite ways. I, I think it's safe to say almost that the favorite appellation he likes to assign to himself, the favorite descriptor, is that he is holy. Now, when you think of the word holy, you know it means what? Set apart. And we almost always think of it. It's a legitimate, it's more or less a New Testament concept that he, that he is set apart from sin. But that's really not what's at stake in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the issue is that he is set apart from, from creation. He is transcendent. The, uh, 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 I, th this, this phrase has been put to bad use, but uh, it, it, God, the God of Scripture is sometimes referred to as the Holy Other. And just real quickly, what meant by that is that, the holy other. That's what the word transcendent means. Now, again, all right, I'll just leave it at that. My point is that you're, you're Jewish. You know that your God is transcendent. He's not a part of creation. He called it into existence. And you know that your God is not a man, and yet here stands a man in front of you claiming to be, you know, think about it. What about today? Now, you don't know me very well, but if I were to say, you know, I've been doing some thinking. I don't even like to say this out loud. But if I were to say, well, you know, I've been doing some thinking. And I maybe think, I think maybe I'm actually God become flesh. What do you do? You don't let me play with sharp things, right? There, there's a place you put me. <laughs> and by the way, Jesus' own brothers, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, came to take him home, thinking him to be mad. And so my point is, that, and you might say, well, Buckman, if you make that claim, that's silly because, because there's no reason to believe it. But if, you, if, if Jesus made that claim, it would have been a lot more easy to believe because he had a halo, and you don't have a halo. No. <laughs> he didn't have a halo. I always say he didn't go in the dark. He was a man. And before he was a man, he was a young man. Before that, he was a boy. Before that, he was a child. Before that, he was an infant. Before that, he was an embryo, for heaven's sakes. So my point is simply this, that the, the uh, uh, claim that Jesus makes throughout his ministry is to be, on the one hand, the long-awaited Messiah, and on the other hand, God, very God. 
I love to spend the time and talk about the fact that in so many ways the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures anticipated this, but, but I'll just say it's good for us to ponder the reality that those claims were stunningly difficult to believe. And by the way, might I just say that, uh, I'm just going to do something here because I can now because Dana helped me here. But, uh, let me just say that, think about this. This is an important dynamic, I think, that's much misunderappreciated. Given the fact, I, I go back to it, John 20, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So Jesus comes and makes these two bottomlessly difficult claims, and yet if you don't believe them then you are doomed. You can only have life through his name, and, it, and that means to accept those claims. Does that make sense to you? It seems to me fair to say that God had at that point painted himself, and I say this delicately and, and, and not disrespectfully, but God had rather painted himself into a corner at this level that they're bottomlessly difficult, and yet if you don't believe them, then you are doomed. And I like to say that, that you can trace in Scripture the means by which God took those incredible claims, I don't write very well, and I think he's under obligation, first of all, to make them credible. But not only, in other words, worthy of belief. That makes sense to you? But not only credible, more than that, to make them absolutely compelling. And what I mean by that, what just happened? I'm not sure. What I mean by that, is that coming through? Yeah. What I mean by that is that they are so undeniably true that if you refuse to believe them, God can justifiably hold you accountable. Does that make sense to you? Just think about that. Two horribly difficult claims, and yet if you don't believe them, you're doomed. And so God, and indeed he did. And so I would, and, and it is my persuasion that, that I, I can only find two, if you don't mind, tactics which God used to, uh, to accomplish that, to render those incredible claims. Number one, I am the Christ. Number two, I am God come in the flesh. Not only credible, but compelling. And, and the two strategies are, number one, miracles. Now, I'll come back to this another time, but uh, we're not going to have the miracle discussion right now, but suffice it to say that, well, two things. Number one, if, if you're going to have a discussion about miracles, you've got you to define the word biblically. It's a hugely important thing, and and the word miracle is another one of those words in our culture that has kind of fallen among thieves and been stripped of all its goods, you know, and so everything's a miracle. And I went to the doctor, and there's never a parking place, and it was late, and it was so important, there was a parking place right in front. It was a miracle. No, it wasn't a miracle, okay? It was sweet providence. The illustration, I know I've used it here before, forgive me, but you're going down the street in your car, and you come to a red light, you got the green light, guy runs the red light, you don't see him the last minute, he's heading right for you, you know he's going to plow into you. You know, you close your eyes, you spin the wheel, you throw on the brakes, you open your eyes, and somehow he missed you. So you pull over to the side of the road, and you say, oh, thank you. That was a miracle. Well, I like to say, I'm not here to say you shouldn't thank God. And I'm not here to say maybe your guardian angel didn't have to go lay down somewhere for a few minutes, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> But now you're going down the road, and a guy comes bolting out of it, and your car levitates 30 feet in the air, and the other car goes barreling, and then your car gently returns to earth. 
Now you're getting close to a miracle. <laughs> Honest to goodness. Now, I don't think you got a miracle yet because you can't have a miracle without a miracle worker, by definition. Why is that? Because miracles are the means that God chose. This goes all the way back to Exodus 4, the second question of the burning bush. Why should they believe you sent me? Remember that when Moses asked that question? And God said, I always like to say, alliterate your points. Works every time. No, that's not what he said at all. What he said was, what's that in your hand? Throw it down, pick it up, put your hand in, comes out lepers, put it back in, and so on. The whole point being that God equipped Moses to do signs. The word that's most often used for miracles in the New Testament is the word semiah, sign. It doesn't mean pointer. It means badge. And, and the, 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 the means by which a person, and there's a lot to this, and I realize that the Antichrist is going to do genuine miracles and so on. And, and, and listen, in the scriptures, there is one qualifier for a man's claim to be a divine messenger. That's miracle. And I'm talking for it to work. You see, you and I got a completed Bible, so we don't have to live with this issue. But there was generation after generation of people who the scriptures were being given and there were people coming claiming to be prophets, claiming to be apostles in the New Testament. Were there false prophets? You bet them. Were there false apostles? How do you tell the difference? The one positive qualifier is miracle. True blue, no kidding around, top drawer, muscled up, hair on their chest, miracle. All right? Not just sweet coincidence, but miracle. On the other hand, there are about eight different disqualifiers. And so even if somebody does a miracle, Deuteronomy 13, God says, I may send you someone and he claims to have, uh, uh, he has a sign and I allow the sign to come to pass, but his message is, let's go after other gods, stone him. So even though he could do a miracle, he says, I'm testing you. Yahweh says in Deuteronomy 13, I'm testing you. So are you with me on this? I'm just saying that how is God going to prove true? How is he going to take Jesus' claims and render them in the first place credible, but more importantly, even compelling. And that is, first of all, Jesus does so many miracles that all the books in the world couldn't contain their, the number. You know, I, I've often thought, too, thinking about the, the life of Jesus, I've often thought, minister, I'm thinking, could there, what, what would have been, do we still talk about degrees of separation? Kids, do you know what we mean by this? What, what could have been, what must have been the, the, the standard degree of separation between anybody living in the land of Israel between 29 and 33 AD and somebody who had been healed. You know what I'm saying? Certainly, it could be more than two or three degrees of self. Some, your neighbor had a baby who was blind and she can see, your second cousin, whatever in the world. And so Jesus goes around doing so many miracles that all the books. Now, I didn't finish the thought maybe a little bit. He, on the other hand, again, Biblically, there is a careful construct or set of ideas by which you can measure. You're not hearing that, are you? Are you hearing my phone? Okay, good. I'm sorry. <laughs> my phone's over there. It's ringing. I can't do anything about it. I wear hearing aids, and they're Bluetooth. <laughs> I told my pastor I'll never be bored in church again. You know what I'm saying? But, but actually, I'm never bored in that church. But so at any rate, leave that alone. The point is simply that, that uh, uh, Jesus did so many miracles and, and, and there is a, a biblical set of ideas as to how you can test whether a man is genuine a messenger from God. Positively, it's a miracle, but negatively, there are a number of tests and any of the negative disqualifiers trumps the 
qualifiers. That makes sense to you? So you go to Revelation 13, the Antichrist is doing miracles, they're genuine miracles. By the way, here's something interesting. Six times in Revelation 13, you remember this with the false prophet, the beast, and the false prophet, and all that sort of stuff? Six times you have this phrase in, in Revelation 13, that one chapter, it was given to him to do this. So, 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 so he doesn't have the natural capacity, but God allows him to do it. But again, by reason of the fact that he is preaching that which is absolutely contrary to what God has already said, he is to be disqualified. All right, so I'm saying, I'll finish the thought and get back to where I'm supposed to be. So I'm saying that Jesus claims, first of all, if you don't mind, to be the Messiah, the long way, and secondly, if you don't mind, to be God come in the flesh, are on the face of it incredible. But how is God going to render them, first of all, credible and then compelling? Number one is miracles, and number two is obviously Old Testament prophecies. So many prophecies that could not be counterfeited. And by reason of a character, if you do the Berean thing, if you, if you hear the testimony of Jesus, you know, I'm talking about Acts 17, you, you, you hear the testimony of the miracles and see the evidence. I want to come back to that a little later. On the other hand, and then you check the scriptures. Remember, the Bereans were the more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And you're going to be brought to the absolutely undeniable conclusion. It's compelling. The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus is everything he claimed to be. Does that make sense to you? All right, so what am I doing there? All right, I'll tell you. All I wanted to talk about is simply this, that there are so many dynamics of Jesus' ministry that not the least of which, I'm going to come back, is, is the fact that he had to be so clever, so careful, he had to be so strategic. Here, here, just as a test question. Could, during his earthly ministry, could Jesus set out to do something and fail? Here's a verse, Mark chapter 7, verse 23. He went into a house. He would have no man know it. Can you finish the verse? But he could not be hid. And that's when the woman comes and begs for her daughter to be healed, and pretty soon he's got a big crowd, and he's got to go on the, on the road. Now, let me say, he... I think, in all honesty, thought that perhaps it would work. He was trying to get alone. He was going to Gentile territory. And so he makes his way clear up to Syrophoenicia. It's a long walk with his 12 disciples. And he, he finds a house. And he says, maybe I can go in here and have the time to spend with them, to, to introduce them to the fact that it didn't work. Now, Jesus stayed at it. He tried it in Decapolis. He went to Decapolis again, hoping to get alone. There they brought him a man who was deaf, and he, you know, he sighed and said, be open. And finally, because Jesus was so clever, he realized, I think, he, 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 he knew the territory, and so he made his way up to Caesarea Philippi, the regions of, because Caesarea Philippi, I can take you there, we can go there, and that's all I do there is try and point out why this was so perfect as a place where Jesus finally could get alone because it's entirely given over to a god, a Roman god named Pan, and it's a place of rest and recreation and ribaldry, I always say, for Roman soldiers, and it's hugely dangerous, and so Jews would never go near there, but Jesus does, in fact, go to that region, not to Caesarea Philippi, but to the region, and thus he's able to get along with his disciples. He spends about four months working at the effort to get along with his disciples. Now, I asked, could he set out to do something and fail? I, I, I don't think he could permanently fail, but he was frustrated along the way. And it cost him a lot of months and a lot of miles. Uh, you know, in, in John chapter 11, the 
Pharisees, this is, the, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, and this is where Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication, just several months, three months before he dies. Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah in, in, in December, and he makes the claim to be one with the Father, and, and the Pharisees pick up to stone him, stones to stone him, and what does he do? He crosses the Jordan River and goes to Perea. That's stunningly clever. But the reason he, know, he knows the jurisdictional dynamics, he knows that Pilate is, in, 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 is the Roman officer in Judea, and he knows that Pilate is entirely crippled, that the Jewish leaders can get Pilate to do their bidding, where he knows that Herod Antipas is in charge in, in, in Perea, and, and the Jewish leaders have no leverage over Herod Antipas, so he's, more, he's much safer. As a matter of fact, some Pharisees come, Luke 13, and try and trick him. Remember, they come back and say, you better get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Well, Herod didn't want to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And they wanted to get back there to Judea where they could get Pilate to do their dirty work. But again, those jurisdictional dynamics that he knew he was safe under, much more safe, he's in much greater danger in the region of, of, of Pilate than he is in Herod Antipas. So he makes his way across. That makes sense to you? All of these, these very, very real, all right. So what am I saying? That... There are so many elements of Jesus' life, as recorded in the gospel, which I think lose so much of their flavor and interest and, and so on, if we picture Jesus as just, like I say, trotting through life as some sort of a, uh, a robotizing, you know, everything just has to fall into place because after all, he's God and he knows. And, all right, so, and, and I'll ask one other question. I'm going to take you this and then we can... I can move quickly. But I asked, could he set out to do something and fail? And, and I think Mark 7 is absolutely clear. Now, I'm going to refine it one more time. He didn't ultimately fail. He set out to get along with his disciples, and it took him several tries, and he got frustrated along the way. But he got it done because he stayed with it, because he was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And you know what? He demands that of you. And I find it unspeakably encouraging that my Savior understands what that is, that that's the way he lived his life. As a matter of fact, when he says in Matthew 10 and verse 16, that's part of that remarkable commission that he gives to the 12 and the Galilean ministry, late in the Galilean ministry, he sends them out two by two. But he says, as you go, this is what he says, therefore I, 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 I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And interestingly, Generally, I think when that's read, and I understand, but we think that the therefore has to do with the sheep in the midst of wolves, right? I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore you must be. The Greek is quite explicit, and the reference, the therefore refers not to the sheep in the wolves, but he's doing the sending. What he is saying is, I'm the one doing the sending. You're going in my name, and therefore you have to reflect who I am. And therefore, you must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves because Jesus was that imperfection. And it's so interesting to trace that. I'll ask you another question just real quickly. And I'm setting you up here. During the period of his life on earth, was, could Jesus be ignorant of anything? Could there be something he did not know? And honest to goodness, I know the impulse, and I don't think this takes 30 seconds of reflection before uh, it's going to prove to anybody that it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's incoherent. But, but the, 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 you know, I think the kind of the intuitive response is, well, yes, he was God, very God, and so he was omniscient, and so he 
He always, you know, he, he was always in, 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 in deliberate exercise of his omniscience, and there was never anything that he was ignorant of. Well, number one, let me just say, <laughs> and I kind of deal with this later, but let me just say this, that, uh, well, number one, there were times where Jesus demonstrated supernatural knowledge. There's no doubt about that. He knew a woman had five husbands. He just met her there at Sychar. He knew that Nathaniel was a man, you know, an Israelite without, in whom there was no guile, and he never met the man. So there are times where Jesus demonstrates supernatural knowledge, if you don't mind omniscience. Now, one of the arguments I'm going to make, and in this regard, and I think it's hugely important, is this that during his life on earth, during his mortality, Jesus was, had no more spiritual resources than you and I. And that he was absolutely, than you and I have, and that he was absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God. So I would refine that statement just slightly, and I would say, yes, there are times when the Spirit of God equips Jesus to know supernaturally. So he knows a woman has five husbands and so on. Now here's a question. I would argue, and it's not quite as explicit, but I think it's the only option. I would argue that the Spirit of God enabled Peter to know that Ananias and Sapphira were lying. Would you agree? Would you leap from there to the idea that Peter lived his whole life that way? Well, of course not. Well, I'm going to say the same thing. Uh, to leap from the fact that there were times where the Spirit of God enabled Jesus to know supernaturally to the idea that he lived in constant exercise of his omniscience. Now, look, I'm dancing all around this thing, but on your notes here, I, I appeal to this, this standard statement. It's on the back of your notes here. I'm not very good at following my own notes, but, but right here. And, and it's a standard theological expression as to how to best understand the relationship between, if you don't mind, the divine and the human in Jesus. And it's, it's very carefully worded. And let me just, you can read it for yourself there. It says, simply says that during the period between his physical conception and his ascension of the Father, here it is, Jesus voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Now, what is very important there is what that is not saying. It doesn't say he surrendered his attributes. An attribute is that without which God would not be God. And Jesus never, in any sense, to any degree, at any season, under any circumstances, by any definition, surrendered one whit of deity. Amen and amen? We got that on the table? What it says is that he surrendered the independent exercise. Oh, by the way, it doesn't even say he, that he surrendered the exercise of his attributes, because I would argue that, yeah, when the Spirit of God directed him so to do, he did demonstrate supernatural knowledge, omniscience. He did heal the sick and raise the dead, which is a function of his, of his divine power. So it's not that he surrendered his attributes. You know, God forbid the reprehensible thought. It's not even that he surrendered the exercise of his attributes, but he surrendered the independent exercise. And to whom did he surrender the, the exercise? It, to the Spirit of God. There is a marvelous little book, and I really recommend this to you. It's by a man named Gerald Hawthorne, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E. 
And it's called, uh, what's it called? The, uh, all right, I'm close. I think it's called The Presence and the Power. But it is simply Hawthorne, New Testament scholar, taught at Wheaton College his whole year, his whole life. But he, he's gone to be with Jesus. But he, he, he just goes through and traces the scriptural teaching as to the relationship between the Son and the Spirit. It is overwhelming in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, that Jesus was absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. All right, so what am I? I, I wander down these roads. I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying to you. I, I, it, it, there is, we want to be so careful not to suggest deliberately or witlessly that Jesus surrendered his deity. I don't even think it's fair to say he surrendered the exercise of his deity. But the Bible, I think, could not be more clear that he surrendered the independent exercise of his deity. And you know, uh, all right, just to get to my point here, I'll go back to my question. Was it possible for Jesus to be ignorant of something during his life? It could not be more obvious. And if it, I mean, there are times where the passage I just uh, alluded to, John chapter 11, where he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he affirms to Mary, that, to Martha, first of all, that I am the resurrection and the life. What's the next thing he says? Where have they laid him? That's right. Where's the tomb? If I could find the tomb, I'd raise this fellow from the dead. You know what I mean? Well, I don't mean to be flipped, but, and, and I know some people say, well, he was just making conversation. You cannot do that. You cannot go to the passage for no good reason whatever. And uh, it's not, Adam, where are thou? I know there's a good reason to that. But, but this is Jesus asking an honest question. My, my, my favorite illustration, I think, of this is, and I'm saying that in the text, there are any number of places where Jesus needs information. And he asks for it. Now, my, my, uh, this is a little different, but my favorite illustration of this is the fig tree incident where it says, matter of fact, I think I have it uh, here in the text. He says, uh, yeah, this is uh, Mark chapter 11. The next day when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Now, that's pretty explicit. And, and I always say, now I, I get into this and the fact that fig trees uh, bear figs throughout the year several times, but there's a winter fig that you can't harvest and the winter fig comes before the summer fruit and the summer fruit is what you harvest and the, uh, the, the, the summer fruit is all, always preceded by the leaves. So if you see a fig tree and it's got leaves, it's reasonable to assume it's got winter figs and the winter figs were help yourself and, and it's early in the morning and, G, and the Jews don't, Begin a day with meals. Uh, with a meal, they 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 are up and at whatever they're going to do before the sun comes up, and then they eat mid morning. So at any rate, the point is, in the course of this day, it's Monday, the Passion Week. Jesus sees that fig tree, and uh, he's hungry, and it's perfectly legitimate. And so he goes to see. And I, I like to say there are only two scenarios you can generate here. One, and I think as I say this, you'll be slightly off put if not offended by it. But one is that Jesus sees the fig tree, and he says, well, because I am in constant exercise. Notice I didn't say possession. That's a different issue. But I'm saying, I think this is wrong, but Jesus says, because I am in constant exercise of omniscience, I know that there are no figs on that fig tree, 
but I have a point to make, and so I'm going to pretend to go over there and look like I'm looking for figs and then be frustrated because I don't find any. Well, you know Jesus didn't live his life that way. Tell me what other options are. Jesus was schnookered by the fig tree, like you and I would be schnookered by the fig tree. Had leaves, should have figs, doesn't have figs. And he had to discover that. Now, now let me get a little deeper into it because, I mean, we generally think about that. If I ask that question during his life on earth, was there things, were there things he, he could be ignorant of? On the other hand, think about this, folks. Go back before his public ministry. There is, all right, now, kids, I'm going to say something. I'm going to tell you a story that's a lie. Uh, I, I want to make a point, but when I'm done, I'll hypnotize you, okay? <laughs> when I'm done, I'm going to snap my fingers, forget this, okay? But there is, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow night, actually, or, yeah, tomorrow night, but maybe Sunday morning, I think. But there are a number of very late, very heretical, deliberately heretical accounts of Jesus as a boy and sometimes as an infancy. There is this gospel of the infancy and it's late, it's Gnostic, it's a bunch of lies. Folks, time out real quickly. It's important that it's Gnostic because the Gnostics despised, you know, they were dualists and they despised the physical and so they hated the idea of Jesus' genuine humanity. So they rewrote his life in these late fables that are total lies and heresies where they try and make him some sort of a superboy. And in one of those, it says that when Jesus was born, as his mother was wrapping him in swaddling clothes, he looked up and said to her, handle me carefully, I'm the son of God. Now, I always say, that takes some of the fun out of Christmas. I think we'd, we'd all agree. <laughs> and, and, and you see where I'm taking you? The, 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 was Jesus born pre-sent? Listen, it is not accidental for a human baby to be born pre-sentient, right? You don't wonder if your baby is going to emerge from the womb speaking to you, all right? If he does, he's not a human baby. He's an alien of some sort, right? So you see where I'm taking you? Of course he had to learn. Of course he had to discover who he was. He had to grow up. I, I am persuaded, and this is an issue of some debate, all right? But it is my, I believe this, I like to say, with two or three fibers of my being. You know what I'm saying? I, I, you can talk me out of it. But it's my persuasion that Jesus had no remembrance of a former existence. I think what he knew about himself, he learned from the scriptures. I think as he grew into himself, he, he had to learn just as any human baby. Now again, his humanity was genuine, but it was unfallen. And that's important to take into account. And I know sometimes the attitude is, wait a minute. Can you be really human without sin? Is it? Oh, yes, you can. Remember, there was a man named Adam. He was fully human before he fell with no sin. And, and Jesus is. That's it's in that sense that Jesus, I believe, is the last Adam. I know it always goes to federal heads. But I think the point is that Jesus, ontologically, as far as his humanity was concerned, he was like Adam before Adam fell. He was un, he, he, he was unfallen. But having said it, my point is simply that that the, the, uh, the idea that he could speak as he, boy, all of those are horrible and, 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 like I say, disconcerting, so forget that, okay? Forget you ever heard that story. But having said it, honest to goodness, uh, you hear my point that, that uh, of course Jesus had to learn. Of course he had to, uh, you know, I, I love the story, and we're actually going to talk about it, and I'll probably make this point when we do, but in Luke chapter 2, 
when you have that winsome, delightful story of Jesus, and I believe he's just been bar mitzvah, but we'll talk about that. But he finds himself, he tarries behind in Jerusalem, and it was Passover, and the rabbis would all bring their itinerant schools and meet in the courts of the, the court of the Gentiles in various places. And of course, Jesus was so attracted to that, and so he is uh, answering and asking questions, and everybody is amazed at his, uh, at his, his understanding. Uh, here, it'd probably be more compelling if I... Uh, I got down to verse 40. Uh, you know this story well, but he's 12 years old, and uh, he's sitting in the midst of the teachers. I'm, I'm here listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. How came Jesus to have such a marvelous understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures? He studied the Hebrew scriptures. He gave himself. I like to say that as a boy, Jesus tasted the scriptures and found them sweet. Luke chapter 4, as a man, he is going to test the scriptures and find them strong. But, but uh, So let me take you back, having wandered all over the place, to this set of notes. And I, I, I'm not going to, don't worry, we're, we'll be done in just a couple minutes. But I do defend... The, here, I, I go back to my original statement, that I think there is a tendency to underappreciate the reality of Jesus' humanity. But I don't mean that in terms of our doctrinal affirmations, because the Bible is so clear. And, 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 but I mean it in terms of the way we actually read the stories. We assume that Jesus is living those stories out on a plain you know, kind of a hydrofoil experience. You know, his feet never have to quite touch the ground and, and he doesn't have to deal with, no, 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 no. He lived your life in front of you. It's interesting that you trace the narratives carefully and I think it's safe to say that Jesus never, ever uses his miracle working power on his own behalf. Uh, that marvelous temptation narrative, the wilderness experience in, 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 uh, in the synoptics, but you remember, he fasted for 40 days. What do you look like at the end of a 40-day fast? You're barely alive. Now, I think if it were anybody else after he survived the temptation by appealing to the Scriptures, just as you and I must trust in the truth of Scripture, he had no more spiritual resources than you and I, and he utilized them. But the point is, I think if it had been somebody else, he probably would have just spoken them back into to, to health. He did that again and again. He doesn't do that. Angels come. How long do you think those angels ministered to Jesus? Angels can't do miracles. They can't speak. But they can serve. They can go refresh him. They can dress his sores. They can bring him food. And I think those angels probably ministered at least as those 40 days again. That's, that's a month and a half. So certainly several weeks Jesus is ministered to by angels before he's able to uh, stagger. So my point is that Jesus never uses his miracle working power on his behalf. And I think the reason is, and time out real quickly, you may be thinking, and it's good to think of this, that when in, in uh, Luke chapter 4, when the, the Nazarenes try to throw him off a cliff, it says he passing through their midst went his way. And I know sometimes we read that like a beam me up, Scotty sort of thing, you know. I don't think so. I think he just passed through their midst, walked right through them, and, and went his way. 
and, and it's, it's a better way to read the narrative. And, and I, uh, now, here's my point. Why? Why did he never use his miracle work and power? Because he, he came to live your life before you. And you can't do that. And so he's going to use the resources that are available to him in every way to be faithful to what the Father has called him to. And in that, he's living your life in front of you. Does that make sense to you? Now, I, I give you the classic, and I'm not going to go through, okay, the, the, the Chalcedonian Creed, which is sort of, all right, time out, i got to say. I, I will confess happily, I actually, I'm, I'm a Baptist, okay? I'm a proud Baptist. And uh, uh, so when I, when, when you start talking about creeds, and that, I, I break out in a red rash, okay? So, so I'm not a creedal, and you're not either. This church is certainly not. Uh, but there were some times early in Christian history when almost in, entirely accidentally, and you look at the, any one of these creeds, and the way they got there is so corrupt. But this has stood as the standard creedal confession of the person of, of the humanity of Jesus. And by the way, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I haven't got much time for much interesting, but uh, we're going to be done in five minutes. But it's, it's, it's interesting that in the course of church history, and even in, the, in your lifetime, Orthodoxy is almost every case preceded by heterodoxy. In other words, there's some heresy which erupts relative to some doctrine that Christians have always accepted. But when the heresy erupts within the body politic, uh, Christians hie themselves to the scriptures and they ransack the scriptures and they develop a more careful and deliberate statement of the truth that they've always believed. Does that make sense to you? And it was by reason of the fact, after the conversion of Constantine and so on, that there was a great deal of struggle over the person of Jesus, and that's where I want to conclude, that uh, there were some heresies that erupted. First of all, the Arian heresy and the Nicene Creed addressed that, that Jesus was genuinely God. But now, if we acknowledge that he's genuinely God, then certainly he can't be man. No, he is man. And so the Chalcedonian Creed is, is, the, is the explicit, deliberate statement of orthodoxy. Does that make sense to you? Don't worry about it. Suffice it to say, I'm, I'm saying that's exactly what I believe. Listen, I'm a little touchy, okay, just forgive me. But I, I just, again and again, I'm accused of, of, of being some sort of pressing the envelope or being out on the edge. I am on the white line, the middle of the road. This is exactly what believers have always insisted upon and so on. Jesus is God, very God, man, very man. But uh, uh, I think we, we tend to, as I say, kind of discount in the most practical way the, uh, the reality of Jesus' humanity. And I want to encourage you. So, let me conclude with this. Number one, I'm going to go back to where I started. And that is, there are a number of places in Christian thought slash theology, whatever, where you encounter this mystery because you have the intimate interplay between the divine and the human. Now, uh, one one example, I think the, the kind of the most obvious and, and compelling example is the person of Jesus. But I'm saying that this is not unusual. You have exactly the same thing in the scriptures. Uh, I think right now the character of the Bible is, at, is, is in deeper trouble at greater risk in the evangelical world than it's ever been. And it's because of this insistence that, yes, the Bible is the word of God, but it was written by fallible men, and so they make mistakes. And so, and, and, and now again, in every case, if I can picture this, you've got kind of a straight, narrow road, and there's a ditch on either side. 
and, 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 and you got to be careful not to fall into that ditch. So the scriptures, I'll tell you where else, I'm just going to cut to the chase. The, the two that I think are the most compelling, the two areas where you have this interplay between the divine and the human, is number one, sanctification. Ah, well, well, we can go back up and start with salvation. Uh, it, 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 I, I, I believe with all my heart that the only reason I stand here as a believer today is because in eternity past, God set his love on me personally. I, I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I also believe that there was a moment in time where I stood face to face with the gospel. I had a real choice to make. It was not a pretend choice, and my eternal destiny hung on that choice. How can those both be? That's what the Bible teaches. Does that make sense to you? What about sanctification? Who, who, if, if there's any growth, any fruit in your life, who gets all the glory? God, the Spirit of God, right? Amen and amen. What are you doing here? Probably something good on TV. You could have just stayed home. You know, one of the very interesting elements of the Old Testament, the conquest narrative, is that, is that Joshua was not commanded to wipe out the Canaanites. He was, he was commanded to wipe out the defensive capability of the Canaanites, that is, destroy the armies and, and either capture or destroy the walled cities, which he did perfectly. And God gives, in, in, actually in the days of Moses, three reasons why he's not going to have Joshua finish the job. In other words, you know, they're camped down there at Gilgal, and the armies of conquest go up, and they conquer Jericho, and then I, and then Gibeon comes over, and then Hadzor. So the point is, uh, and, 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 but then he goes back and he divides the land among the 12 tribes, and they're responsible to go up and finish the job. And God is explicit as to why he did that. And one of them, here are the three. Number one is uh, uh, to test you, to see if you'll be obedient, the 12 tribes. That makes sense? Number two is, I promised you vineyards to harvest that you didn't plant. And if Joshua kills everybody and then goes back to Gilgal, by the time you get up there, the, the vineyards will be gone. So I, I'm going to leave them there to tend the vineyards till you get back up there. But the third one is, this, this is explicit in the scriptures, the third reason that God says Joshua was only to destroy the, capab the defensive capability is that he wants the tribes to learn warfare. Now, wait a minute. Isn't God going to fight their battles for them? Aren't they going to depend upon God? Yeah. But by the same token, it's your responsibility. You know, I think the whole moral universe, think about this, can be reduced to these two simple truths. If anything good happens, God gets all the glory, all the credit. If anything bad happens, we get all the blame. And I like to say, if that's hard on you, find another moral universe to live in because God made this one and that's how he runs it. <laughs> so I'm just saying that you get this, this remarkable in salvation and sanctification. I'll tell you the big one is prayer. What are you doing when you pray? Are you telling God something you didn't know before? And so you got these two ditches. The one ditch is called open theology. God doesn't know the future. He's making up as he goes along. Other your prayers, oh, that's not what the Bible teaches. The other one is, prayer doesn't really make a difference. It's just God's kind of attitude adjustment trying to get us to think his way. That's not what the Bible says. And yet, you'll never, and, and I'll tell you something. The harder you work to understand that relationship between the divine and the human and pray, the less you'll pray. Okay, you just quit praying. Now, bring it way back to the person of Jesus. All I'm saying is, and it's, it's all I'm saying, what, what we need to come to grips with is there is bottomless, inscrutable, blessed mystery in the person of Jesus. Not unique, 
There are a lot of places where you have that interplay between the divine and the human, and again and again, God simply calls upon us to bow the knee to all the Scripture says. And not only to accept the tension, but to wallow in that tension. Because we serve a God who conducts the moral universe in ways that we... God's not just us blown big. God's God, we're not. He does things, and we can't fathom. But by the same token, we can believe that Jesus is God, very God, and man, very man, and... Here's where the rubber ultimately meets the road, if you don't mind. Folks, it is so unspeakably, eternally important to genuinely, happily, humbly embrace the reality of the genuine humanity of Jesus and to read the stories acknowledging that for two reasons. Number one, he can't be your redeemer if he's not your kinsman, Hebrews 4. It's only because he took upon himself genuine humanity, mysterious as it is, that he can offer himself up. He didn't take upon himself the nature of angels. He came to save men, and so he took upon... But not only can he not be our redeemer unless he's our kinsman, he can't be a high priest touched with the feeling of your infirmities if his the life that he lived was anything less than genuinely human. Does that make sense to you? And we have this marvelous, marvelous truth that we have a high priest who could be touched. So I'm going to say one more time. We're going to talk about it and trace some of the reality in, in Jesus' life itself. But folks, uh, fall in love with. <laughs> Acknowledge the mystery. Bow the knee. Read the scriptures. Fully acknowledging. I, I like to say this, and I'm over time. I'll just take one minute, forgive me. Uh, I have a, my son one time, I'll tell you the story. Uh, he got after me one time. He was smaller, and he said, Dad, you keep quitting. You say you're going to quit, and you don't quit. And my response is, how many chapters are there in Philippians? Philippians? There are four. What's the first word in chapter three? Finally. But at any rate, I'll, I'll quit doing that to you. The point is simply that I got apostolic pattern, you know what I'm saying? Honestly, uh, the point is this. Not the point, but a point I'd like to leave you with is I think the tendency when we're reading the stories of Jesus' life is to probably witlessly, but I think cripplingly nonetheless, the tendency is to just, like I say, quietly assume that Jesus is living this experience out on a plane wholly different than ours, and he's probably no, has secret knowledge and all this sort of stuff that we don't know. Uh, there are places where, to be sure, the Spirit of God equips and directs Jesus to embrace, to you, to utilize those divine abilities and attributes. But I think your tendency ought to be exactly the opposite. That, that always, as you read those marvelous stories, assume that he is living that experience out within the limitations of genuine unfallen humanity, unless there's something in the narrative to demonstrate that he does employ it. That makes sense to you? Think about the man let down through the roof. And, and uh, we read it this morning, it's, uh, this evening, and I love it as well, in Mark 2. But, but remember it says that, uh, 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 that uh, uh, after Jesus dealt with a man who had been not down the roof. The, the Pharisees, who were dogging his steps by this time, 
uh, were angry. And, 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 and it says this, that, that they began to murmur among themselves. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, all right, now, I got you here. You, I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure. You, you're thinking, that was omniscience. Okay, it could be. You help yourself. But do you really need it? Number one, I think Jesus was blindingly intuitive. He could read you like a book, absent any special omniscience, simply because he knew the scriptures. He knew man so well. But number two, think about the situation. They're sitting there. You know, you can see a Pharisee about a mile off, and they're sitting there, and they're angry, and Jesus says, thy sin be forgiven thee, and they began to... I could have figured out what they were saying. What do you think they're saying, for heaven's sake? So all I'm saying is that I don't think you need to insinuate supernatural. Help yourself. I don't know. We can check when we get there. But I just like to read the text, the narrative, in such a way as, 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 as your working assumption is he's, work, he's living it out within the limitations of unfallen man. Does that make sense to you? All right, I'm late. Let me have a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this marvelous work. And Father, you have protected it, uh, uh, this ministry, this church, this body of Christ here in Hutchinson over the years. And it's been a delight to, to just witness that even from afar. But I would pray that you continue to prosper and protect uh, the work of this church right here. Other churches as well, but this body of believers that you would continue to protect them. And thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to gather over this weekend and pray that you, you might uh, just, again, bless our efforts for your glory. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I think we are... Bart, where are you at? We're dismissed. We're dismissed. Take the rest of the night off. You don't... Know?